Welcome to the Forecasting Impact, a podcast supported by the International Institute of Forecasters. This show brings you the most inspiring people to discuss a wide range of subjects on forecasting science and practice in business, society, economy, and education. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Forecasting in Pang. My name is Mati Awakasami. I'm a lecturer at the University of Queensland. And today I'm connecting to you from sunny Brisbane in Australia. Our today's guest is someone who we have been looking forward to uh, hosting for a while in Forecasting Impact. So we have him today here. We are excited to have this conversation with him. So um, our guest today is Professor Nikos Krenzis. I'm going to introduce him. Professor Nikos Krenzis is a professor in predictive analytics at Hovde, Sweden, in the Hovde Artificial Intelligence Lab and a member of the Center for Marketing Analytics and Forecasting at Lancaster University, UK. His research interests are various areas of time series modeling and business forecasting using artificial intelligence, econometrics, and statistics. He has been involved in multiple research projects with industry and the public sector. He's also the co-author of the book, Principles of Business Forecasting, the second edition. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Nikos. Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, pleasure. Um, how are things in Sweden? Sweden is uh, is quite nice. <laughs> it's end, end, end of summer, end of summer, so we still have uh, quite uh, decent uh, long days and uh, good temperature. So I cannot complain. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. How long you've been there? Because you you spent quite a while in Lancaster in the UK. How long? Has yeah, been? so I've been here now for must be close to three years now. Actually, not wow. three years yet, but it's close to three years because I moved here just a little bit before the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So three years. That time goes really fast. Uh, so uh, it does indeed. Your... <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, tell us about your uh, career. Where did you start, and how did you end up um, in, in uh, Sweden? Okay. Um, well, I mean, um, first of all, I didn't expect to become an academic. I didn't think I would become an academic myself until oh, yeah? it suddenly happened. <laughs> and my background <laughs> is nothing to do with uh, statistics, econometrics, or machine learning. Uh, my background is in uh, business administration and management uh, back in Greece many, many years ago. But uh, at some point, I figured out that uh, it's nice to know what questions to ask. It would be even nicer if you actually know how to answer some of this stuff. And what I was missing was some of the mathematical skills. So that uh, led me to go for my degree in operational research uh, in Lancaster in England. And um, yeah, I did my master's there, PhD, and then I said, oh, research is fun. I like research. <laughs> and I, I stayed up for uh, becoming an academic. And I, I spent um, around 15 years in Lancaster, including my studies, actually. And um, after this time, I moved eventually to Sweden. So in, in Lancaster, I was in a business school, a bit closer to my background and a bit closer to my kind of experience. Uh, but in Sweden, now I'm in a computer science department, sort of looking for keeping the things a bit um, fresh, learn new things. Yeah. If you're yeah. again at the same time in the same environment, at some point you say like, all right, what's new here? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, definitely. When you're moving from one faculty 
uh, or a school to another school, there's a bit of learning also involved and you know, maybe new challenges and new opportunities. So now you're in Absolutely. the hope the artificial intelligence lab, is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it's a yeah. it's a it's a very different uh, unit than the one I used to be before at Lancaster. So you mentioned the Center for Marketing Analytics and Forecasting, which yeah. is primarily focused on well forecasting, uh, as uh, <laughs> people in the community at least know. Um, the new unit is a bit more broad in its interest. So AI is the connecting uh, link, but. <laughs> You know, if you try to define what AI is nowadays, I guess it's a bit of everything as long as it has numbers. And and that is a bit true in our group as well. So there are people who are more in the traditional aspects of what people would expect to be AI. So application, let's say, of deep learning and so on. There are people who are looking more at the cognitive side of AI. There are people who are looking more at statistical learning models and not so much on, let's say, the machine learning models. Um, but all in all, it's quite nice because the group is very multifaceted. Uh, yeah. In some sense, you know, are they all doing forecasting? No, not yet. I like to use the word yet because eventually they will do all of them forecasting. But uh, the point <laughs> here is that it's quite nice because you do have this kind of different points of view and you do have the kind, the different research interests. But at the same time, the group is cohesive enough that we can be in the same room, have a research discussion and, and be enjoyable. So it's a very different style. and. In some sense, that's more, uh, I would say, my experience from the computer science groups as well, that they're more interested in, uh, like, difference in applications, differences in the rest are fine, but as long as you have a common modeling question, it works out in some sense. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, um, the, the scope of AI is, is really broad, and uh, you can have people from different disciplines and different uh, backgrounds coming to work on AI. And well, it, part of it, we can name it AI, but you know, depending on uh, what you're working on. Um, so this is, I know that you have worked on neural networks and stuff, um, maybe decade, uh, more than a decade ago, uh, maybe back then neural network wasn't that much cool as it is these days. Uh, but um, you have also, um, uh, when I was looking at your profile, you have worked on different areas of forecasting using machine learning, coming to the judgment, statistical models, and different stuff. Um, so in your experience, how do you see all these methods, um, starting from machine learning, and then we can talk about judgment as well and other aspects. How do you see the evolution of these models in both in theory and also in practice? Yeah, so that's a good question. <laughs> when, I, when I was a bit younger in my career, uh, Robert, Robert Files, that is, um, he was always asking me like, um, okay, so what's your research profile? <laughs> because I was using all these techniques already and uh, also different applications. And I, I kind of ended up thinking that, okay, my research question, underlying research question of all this is modeling uncertainty. Um, and I don't think that's something that is uh, in some sense uh, a statistical question or a machine learning question, or in some sense, if you even think that that's been the aspect of forecasting, well, you know, we have an implicit model in our head that has some uncertainty. And when you combine that uncertainty, let's say, with a statistical model uncertainty or machine learning uncertainty and so on, you still have more or less an underlying forecasting methodology. It's also coming a bit back from my background. As I said, my background is in business administration. So at the end of the day, I would like to do research that says, all right, and that's how we help something get a bit better. Or that's how we resolve a question, let's say, for an organization. That could be, you know, someone like a, 
I don't know, a, a, a non-profit organization or it could be a company or something like that. But eventually they have a question on how to do their life easier or how to get their um, service or their product delivered. So in that, in some, in that sense, you know, do we expect forecasting to ever be, uh, let's say, clean statistical or clean machine learning or clean judgment? No, it will never be like that. So you have to look at all the aspects if you look at it in the context of the application of forecasting. Yeah, yeah, surely. It is a combination of both, really. not We can't look at one problem um, just from, um, you know, we can't tackle the complicated problems just by one or two tools that we have in our toolbox, but really looking at it from different aspects. Um, so the um, one of the things that, um, you know, it's, um, it's, it, it is it is a hard, but uh, a lot of work has been done in this area. And I think it is, we are still in infancy of it artificial intelligence, AI in, in uh, uh, forecasting. So if from your experience, uh, what are the things that you, you, you think during the last decade has uh, evolved and got more mature using AI in forecasting? And what do you think it will look like in future? Maybe you can give us a forecast, like how does it look like <laughs> in a few years? I think I think the the world the world of AI and by that let's limit it to application of let's say neural networks either uh, you know traditional neural networks or deep learning neural networks of different architectures to let's say predicting from models let's let's keep that scope like that <laughs> I think it's a very exciting area I think um, you mentioned before that I have done research uh, during my PhD and some years after in uh, neural networks this was in the previous let's say generation of neural networks. I do think they did a tremendous job back there, but they could not answer a simple question, which was of the style of, can I get similar performance using some much simpler statistical model? And the simpler here is not about the equation being transparent or about it being easier to explain or not. It's about, can I run it on a laptop? That is really the issue. Mm -hmm. And I think what we really changed over the years is that because of technology changing, now we run most of our calculations on a GPU, then it suddenly became easy to run these models very cheap and very fast. And that allows us to actually go for larger models. And the larger models actually are the ones that have demonstrated the capabilities that we see now. So for instance, there is all this discussion about global and local learning. If you look at mm -hmm. papers in the early 2000s, there are these questions there, but we did not have the computational power to resolve these questions. Or um, there are papers back then that say, oh, do we need a single layer or do we need multiple layers? We don't see the advantage of multiple layers if you consider how much more expensive is the network. So what mm -hmm. I'm trying to say is that I don't see it as a, uh, I see it as a continuation. What's happening now, I see it as a continuation of the development. The questions were there. Now we're able to, to, uh, to address these questions. And this gives us capabilities that we potentially cannot always have with our statistical models. However, I disagree that uh, it's one or the other. I think both of the sides have a lot to do and both of the sides have a lot to teach each other. One of the issues, for instance, that was very common when I was doing my PhD back in neural networks was that a lot of the computer scientists who were developing the work, they, were, they did not know basic econometric modeling, like ARIMA models. Yeah. And if you would apply ARIMA methodology to simple neural networks, you could do quite nice stuff and make them much more efficient, much more accurate as well. 
The same thing is true for the deep learning models. I have not seen the evidence that we should throw, throw out of the window our econometric knowledge. Yeah. Yet, we don't see it in all the papers. I mean, of course, you know, we are both in the same field. We both publish in similar journals and we, we influence the, the direction there as well. But in some sense, you see that the majority of the publications are more interested about let me make a new architecture rather than let me be more, um, let's say, think through the information before I provide the network because of this mantra of modeling that the network can do it on their own. Well, maybe they can, maybe they cannot, but we can also use our intelligence to make it more efficient. Yeah. So wh where I'm getting with all that, I think, I think we still have to do some catch up from the other disciplines. Like you have from one side, the algorithmical developments, which are fantastic and tremendous. And you can see all these applications of AI around us, let's say image generation from text, for instance, this is quite impressive, but it means little for forecasting right now. So we need to see what this algorithmic innovation, once it's translated with all our econometric modeling, what does it give us? So it's, I think it's quite exciting because people now understand this. People see that, oh, I cannot do everything by just tweaking parameters, or I cannot do everything with a, a linear model. Now we see there is somewhere in the middle a new area, and that's, that's really cool, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, um, I like the idea that you said some of the art, some of the things that we do, actually, we are revisiting some of the topics that we had the discussion around them maybe in the 80s, but we didn't have the computational power to really tackle these problems. And it is the time to maybe revisit some of those concepts and see uh, where do we stand. Um, there is this saying that um, if you want a new idea, uh, maybe read an old book and uh, <laughs> you, you, you can get to the root of some of the ideas and then uh, try to implement and see how it works. Um, I, I, think that, I think that's a good point. But one thing I would say here is that indeed a lot of times our research is revolving around similar themes from, let's say, previous generations of research, let's say. But, but sometimes because we have this, all these new results, we can get this insightful result. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the cool thing we can do right now. I mean. Yeah, for instance, another area I've worked a lot is intermittent demand. And it's a, it's mm -hmm. a much more niche area of research. But arguably, it's now that we're seeing new ideas. It has been for more than 20 years we've been going mm -hmm. around the same approaches over and over again. That's a bit unfair to the colleagues and, and arguably to some of my papers as well. But we, there hasn't been an innovation of the style of uh, deep learning, let's say. Um, yeah, true, but because we, because we have distilled this knowledge enough, now you see younger researchers saying, I can think the problem differently because I know all the limitations of the previous thinking. So yeah. there is a bit of that happening as well. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. There are things that has been built up you know, uh, during the last two decades, let's say, if you don't want to go too, uh, back, too far away back. And definitely, yes, we can build upon them for, for discovering new things. One of the things, when I came to a conference, I think it was a webinar or something, when I was watching uh, one of these webinars and you were talking about it uh, and hierarchical forecasting, and I have told you this before, and you touched upon a topic, I think it was 2018 or 17 or something, that only the surface has been scratched. And back then I was a PhD student and I spent a bit of time uh, working on hierarchical forecasting that was a one of the chapters actually in my PhD. And um, I've, I've, I've published a few papers in um, machine learning and uh, you know, recently in International Journal of Forecasting. But that was a very, you know, for me as a PhD student, it was really good because that was 
confirming, oh, this is actually a problem that um, Nikos has worked on it and he, he thinks this is good um, and only the surface has been scratched. So I spent uh, confidently a bit time on that. And I think it's still, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, so now what I want to ask you is, because um, you have been working in this area, maybe this is a question maybe for some ECRs uh, or PhD students, that um, what are the things that you think people, um, younger generation in, in forecasting PhD students or the ones coming in can uh, spend time and do research in, in, in forecasting? What would be the advice, some practical advice on that? I think it's difficult to say here are three topics. Um, I mean, <laughs> the easy answer to here are three topics. I would say, look at my papers. These are exciting papers. <laughs> 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 yeah. In some sense, this is, this, there is a bit of truth in that answer in the sense that it has to be an exciting area. I always found that uh, when I'm researching something that I find fascinating, then I have the appetite and uh, the enthusiasm, let's say, to go and do more work. Um, you need to, you need to be able to think a bit differently than your friends and your colleagues because otherwise you'll just produce another marginal contribution. So that's what I usually tell when I have, let's say, uh, either master students trying to start their dissertation or PhD students working on their PhD. I tell them like, but what can you bring in that topic? What is your perspective? What is your idea? And in some sense, I'm saying that because. As I mentioned, my background is not in econometrics or is not in machine learning. And I often see this being an advantage for me. You know, arguably you could say, oh yeah, but your mathematical skills, yeah, okay, you can learn mathematics. Or even if you start from a heavy mathematical background, you can learn all the business side. It doesn't matter as long as you put the effort. But what can you bring yourself as a researcher that the area is missing? It's very easy to say, oh, someone can do this empirical evaluation or someone can do this extension. And typically it's written, as we said before, in the conclusions, like uh, in future work, someone should look at this because it's too tedious for us or because the reviewer told us to not look at it or whatever, you know. But um, if you actually are enthusiastic about the topic, then you can do pretty good stuff. I, I can give an example from the hierarchical models, for instance. Um, I'm much more focused in the temporal hierarchy side that I've been mm -hmm. working on for uh, the last years. Mathematically speaking, they have the same basis as the cross-sectional hierarchies. And in some sense, this distinction between the two and all the stuff is, I would arguably say something that uh, colleagues and I have pushed to have in the literature. Now I'm reaching to the point where I'm realizing that, yeah, they can have the same foundation, but they don't have to. You can go much deeper from one side and maybe by going much deeper, let's say personally go on the temporal side, I must deeper in that side. Maybe you learn new insights for the cross-sectional side, but you don't have to keep on thinking it in the same way that we have written it ourselves. In fact, I would say that, um, I mean, okay, here is one, one, one uh, uh, let's say, example of that. Um, yeah. Temporal hierarchies, I think the foundation paper for that, I would say, is the 2014 paper that... Um, we have with uh, Fotis Petropoulos and uh, Juan Ramon Trapero, the multiple aggregation prediction algorithm. Because it puts the idea there that, oh, look, you can use many levels together, model them separately, and then somehow combine them. Now, yeah. this is a very crude approach compared to the temporal hierarchies. Temporal hierarchies is theoretically much more elegant. It allows you to do much more, um, how should I put it, a, a, a theoretical uh, investigation of its properties and how to do it properly. However, and there is a paper coming out on that. Uh, however, 
if you look at it empirically speaking, the first algorithm is still pretty good in terms of accuracy. So it's doing yeah. something right. Um, but it's very crude. And in some sense, it's crude because it doesn't have the theoretical background that temporal hierarchies use because they use all the cross-sectional work that has been done. So what I'm getting with all that thinking, well, surely there is something we're missing. Surely there is something that we haven't looked at it at the theory of hierarchical forecasting, that if we keep on thinking temporal hierarchies as it has to follow that theory, we will never be able to resolve. So for me, this kind of um, results are a good, let's say, indication, okay, there is work to be done here, but it's not about looking at the same way of thinking. I have to think the problem very differently. And yeah. since, of course, temporal hierarchy is something I find myself excited to work on, then I say like, okay, let me find different, completely different ways to look at it. And over the last, for instance, years at the conferences, I've presented a few different variations of it. Most of these have not reached to, into papers because while I was working on them, I said, okay, I understand where this is reaching. If I'm going to make it in the paper now, I will lose some time to do the paper. I will have also to go through the review process and all that stuff, which is another bit of investment in time. Or I can take the insights I have and go a bit deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Arguably, I have to say, this is this is a bit of a risky approach. And I, it's easier for me to do it now that I'm a professor rather than someone who is an early PhD. But yeah. in some sense, it says something. It says that, and again, that's an advice that a lot of uh, senior academics gave me when I was a junior. Do the exciting research. Don't do the easy yeah. research. The easy research, everybody yes. can do it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. One of the things is uh, really, if you want to do a... Uh, really new work, uh, you can start by questioning the assumption that everybody has made. Does it really have to be that way, the assumption? Why do you want, why do you need to have this assumption in mind? And uh, when does it work? When does it, when it doesn't work? And uh, it, it is true about the hierarchical as well. Uh, and, and, and also about many other uh, fields. But yeah, definitely, I think it, it, a bit of radical thinking would be very useful. It, it, Here's a good example of hierarchical. I, I, I agree with what you said. I usually express it in a different way. I express it, if I don't understand the paper, first I check why I don't understand it. But if I keep on not understanding, then probably the paper is wrong. And there is research yeah. uh, opportunity there. And hierarchical modeling has this element, for instance. Um, the, the two papers that I was influenced a lot by, of course, are the first two papers by the team in Monas, uh, 2009 that yeah. uh, Thanasopoulos et al. And the other one that comes from uh, Heinemann et al, 2011. Now, in these papers, we know now that uh, there was an issue with the scaling of the variables. Mm-hmm. When uh, when I, we tried uh, with uh, Fotis and Juan to write MAPA, we were trying initially to build it on those papers. But this scaling element, it just didn't adapt to me. And I was saying, like, all right, I don't understand the papers probably. Back then, I didn't have the confidence necessarily to say, oh, the papers have an issue. Um, But it was something that was a bit of a thorn in the thinking. And that's why we went a different direction. And funnily enough, after a couple of years, we got funding to go actually to to Monas to talk with the people. And in our discussion, it was apparent, okay, yeah, there is an issue there. So what I'm trying to say is that sometimes when we don't understand something, well, let's make sure we have done our homework. But once we have done our homework, let's not take it for granted. And uh, mm-hmm. something that may may make some people flinch. I would arguably say yeah. that likelihood is a bit of that. Maximum likelihood estimator 
you know, the shrinkers took many years to become a thing because people were very resistant to accept that likelihood had issues. It's not that people did not know it, but the mainstream response was likelihood works. Why do we need shrinkers? Shrinkers yeah. is not statistically equivalent to likelihood in terms of its standing. Yet here we are in 2022 and we all talk about shrinkers or training with shrinkers or equivalent techniques. We've, we finally went over it, but it took all this time to get there because initially people would say like, but it's in the textbook. It's by, by mm. the people we all accept and they say that it's all brilliant. Well, yeah, but if you're a researcher, that's not the way to go. The way to go is saying yeah. these people did all this great work for me to find the mistakes and go forward. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, you have to be brave to really go beyond. So I'm going to move on our conversation to the next thing that I wanted to have a chat about with you, and that's your book, um, Principles of Business Forecasting. You have co-authored with Keith Ford and Robert Fogg. Just, just a general discussion, like uh, who is it written for uh, this, this book? Who are the audiences that you wrote this book for? And uh, maybe you can give a general idea for our audiences. So since this is the second edition, in many ways, the basic design of the book and the target audience was done by, uh, by Keith and, uh, and Robert. And the target audience would be business school students, I would arguably say. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. uh, I think the difference between the first and the second edition, and I think here, that's not only my opinion, I would say, my authors probably share the same opinion, is that we try to give a lot more importance in terms of the answering the questions, why? Why should we do this? Uh, what is the thinking behind the particular model? And if you want to know more, here are extra references. So I think, although the main audience would be students in business schools, because for instance, we don't go into proofs, we don't go into this kind of detailing in the mathematics. Uh, in some sense, I would arguably say it is one of the books that provide quite a bit of insight in the modeling. Yeah. Let me put yeah. it a bit differently as well. Keith Ord and Robert Files have been doing this for, well, you know, much yeah. more than me. And they have an impressive in insight in how to understand and explain these models. And that's something they have tried to put also in the, in the chapters. And I can see sometimes when we were, the three of us working on the chapters and someone would take a chapter lead on it and then the others would read and review and comment. Sometimes I would read the chapter and say like, oh, wow, that's, that's what this model does. But at other mm -hmm. times I would say like, yeah, okay, but what about these recent papers? They provide a different, they, they, they don't seem to agree in the logic, what's happening here. And mm -hmm. I think in some sense, my contribution in the book was bring also this different thinking, not coming from a mathematics, econometrics background, but also yeah. a, a bit of the more modern approach to the uh, solving everything, let's say, with open source programming and so on. So like R and so on, all the elements of R in the book and, and, and these kind of elements. Which makes the book, I think, now we're having a much wider potential audience than just business school students. It can yeah. provide the thinking behind the modeling, which, you know, I, could, I easily recommend it to my students, let's say now at the computer science department I am as well. They can, yeah. You start the book with the first chapter forecasting the why and the how. And this is exactly yeah. like the idea behind it, why and how. Yeah, it's a beautiful concept. Um, so our audience out there, if you haven't had a chance to read this book, I think there is also a review in International Journal of Forecasting, a book review by, if I'm not mistaken, Stefan Colasa. Uh, so I you can so, yes. also yeah have a look on that one and uh, look at this paper, uh, uh, book as well. Um, all right, so we're going to move on to 
last part of our conversation, uh, tradition, traditional questions that we have in our podcast. And uh, we ask our, uh, our guests to recommend one favorite forecasting related book or forecasting related uh, article. Um, actually, both of the book and an article for our audiences that you think that they would find it useful and uh, interesting. Okay, that's that's always a difficult question. You know, if you ask very me what's difficult your one, movie, yes, <laughs> I, would, I would also go with a difficult question. So I, I, I will I will I will sort of answer. I will say I will give an example of a book and an example of a paper that I like their style, yes. and they're also very close to our community. I think the the, the book I would go for is the uh, time series analysis by Christopher Chatfield, a two thousand uh, book. Um, I don't think enough people have read this book, and what I like about this book is. That, yeah, it gives you, for instance, the basics, but also it gives you a lot of the questions. It tells you, this is what we write in the textbooks, but this doesn't work. Or this one violates all these assumptions, and that's why it doesn't work. So a lot of the research I have been motivated to do from my PhD till now, for instance, is coming from, I always tell my students, read chapter seven from that book. <laughs> because it, <laughs> okay. it, it, it sort of tells you what, uh, you know, all the typical textbooks don't tell you. Okay. It tells you where things get wrong. And I like this insight because uh, Chatfield, uh, I may be wrong here by saying he's retired now. I think he's retired. Um, has worked a lot of years in the area and has managed to write all these fantastic insights in the book. And I like this when I have like someone who will say, right, I thought about this topic for 30 years. Here you go. <laughs> Makes my life so much easier. Cool. And in, in the papers... I would I would pick something similar. I am, you know, forecast combination has been an active research area for so many decades. But recently, recently, now it's almost a decade, um, we've gone a bit further. We understand, for instance, now why let's say optimal combination is not so straightforward as we think. So, and I'll I'll pick a paper from International Journal of Forecasting since we're in this community, and this is the paper by Klaskens et al. Uh, 2016, the the forecast combination puzzle. I think it has something else in the title, forecast combination puzzle, a simple explanation or something along those lines. Why I really like this paper? It has one of the best introductions I've read. If you just read the introduction, you know what the paper is about. It's very intuitive. It has very simple schematics to explain it. It doesn't need to go to heavy math to make the point. Just reading the introduction, you know what you're, you know, you understand what the problem is. You understand also mm -hmm. what is the intuition they're trying to give you. So I think the paper is written very nicely. And then, of course, in the following sections, you go deeper and deeper in, in the maths. But also, I think this paper made a, a very big impact in terms of thinking of the problem. So mm -hmm. it's an insightful solution. It's an impactful solution. Is it the first paper that discusses about that? No, it's not. But I think it's it's one of the first ones, of course, not, not not the very first one. It's one of the first ones, but it's written in a way that makes it so easy to understand and it's so insightful that, in some sense, the papers that follow from that, not diminishing the contribution, but they're more going into addressing details that come out of that thinking rather than a completely different thinking of the problem. I haven't seen at least a different way to express the combination puzzle than the one I see in that paper. You know, here maybe that's, I'm showing my ignorance of the literature. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Uh, so put one book and one paper for our audiences who might be interested to have a look. Certainly, I will have a look on both. And I have but already it's, it's, it's a paper. style of it's, yeah. it's a style of writing that I like. It's, I think it's a very good yeah. example. 
I think, you know, yes. I like to see more papers that are easy to pick up, read and say, ha, here is something I didn't know before. Or yeah. here is something that is, yeah, you know, you have papers that also can be quite significant papers. And, you know, I, I'm guilty of that myself. That You read the abstract and you say, like, yeah, I, I could do that as well. There's nothing here that I couldn't do. But there are some papers you read the abstract and you say, like, plot twist. I didn't expect that. Yeah, <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. Nice. Yes, for sure. Um, all right. Thanks so much, Nikos. Um, it's been really good having chat with you and uh, getting your insights and uh, forecasting and uh, learning from your experiences. Uh, where do people can find more about you? Ah, <laughs> uh, I guess uh, the easiest thing to do is just type my name on Google nowadays. <laughs> I mean, I have a <laughs> your website. Or? I have a website uh, and it's uh, my name, nicolas.curenzes.com. But I, I, I have to say that I don't update it as frequently as I should lately. Um, but uh, I do try also to write some stuff on uh, other outlooks, like for instance, uh, uh, LinkedIn and so on. I think, I think our responsibility to the community changes as we grow a bit uh, more established. Now it's more my responsibility to explain some things as, uh, how to say, practically as possible for industry to pick up rather than to write yet another obscure paper. You know, there are other people do that now. Not that, I, not that I don't like writing papers. I do enjoy the papers a lot, but I think also it's a bit in my responsibility also to do this kind of communication of science to practice. So I put quite a bit of time on that. So um, I do try to write online articles in different uh, different outlets. And LinkedIn is one of them, for instance. But uh, yeah, if you just type my name, I think nowadays Google knows everything for us, so there's no problem. <laughs> Yes, awesome. You can check out the website and we will put the link there. Uh, thanks so much, Nikos. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you. Um, and uh, um, yeah, um, keep keep rocking in, in forecasting. Thank you. And thank you very much for uh, having me here. Yeah, pleasure. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, hopefully, you've enjoyed the conversation uh, as I have. And until next time, uh, take care. Take care. Bye. Thank you for taking your time and listening to Forecasting Impact. If you like this show, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Forecasting Impact. Ask your questions and share your thoughts with us. We appreciate you and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode.